0: Welcome to episode 192 of the Reformed
1: Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony. And we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Falling Podcasters. For you. Nothing in this world I do.
0: Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Don't think I didn't hear what you did right there.
1: I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about.
0: That was a wonderful segue, a wonderful opening. I love that the SORP is back. And can we just give a plug for that right now? Just before we even get to affirmations and denials, can we just kind of affirm again generally and cooperatively the SORP?
1: I'll allow it. I'll allow it.
0: Okay. Maybe we should explain what that actually is. Yes.
1: Yeah. The Society of Reformed Podcasters is a network of like-minded podcasts that are committed to producing doctrinally sound content um for the edification of the church. So it you know it's there's what is there now 7 8 network shows I don't know off the top of my head. Um we've got some that are really well established long standing shows um you know I think we're probably the oldest or the most tenured show. I don't even know what you call it, a long standing show like this. Uh but then like um Reformed Pilgrims is in their like 50th 50ish episodes and then we right. have brand new shows like Sipping on Theology Austin's just killing it. He did a um he did an episode kind of on prayer. He's he's doing this sort of systematic theology from a more academic sense series, but then he's interspersing these little uh, one-shot episodes that are more on like, okay, so now that we've studied the doctrine of God and the study of Revelation, like what do we do about prayer and how does that impact our life? So there's lots of different kinds of shows. You've got long shows, short shows. Um, it's great. I'm starting to get people who are messaging me asking about uh, their show that they're just getting off the ground, that they'd like to get in on the ground floor on the Society of Reform Podcasters, and I love that. Keep them coming. And, you know, if you are a more technically minded 1689 London Baptist Confession person and would like to start a podcast – um, ever since, uh, according to Christ, went off the air, there's been an, an absence of, I think, really good 1689 technical theology in the in the podcastosphere, whatever you call it. Um, so if you're interested in starting a podcast and fit that description, please message me on Facebook because I would love to help get something like that started. I think there's a gap there. Um, and one of the things that we want to do as the Society of Reform Podcasters is identify these gaps in sort of the podcasting arena and fill right. them and, and help people people get started in those areas where there's a, there's a niche or a gap, but something that we can help kind of an itch, we can help scratch as it were. For
0: sure. So this is kind of like expanding your reformed family podcast, podcasts, yes. it's a safe place that's been vetted more or less where there's yep. a lot of really great content. And I want to commend you, man, that description that you just unfolded <laughs> was pretty amazing. It sounds like we set that up, like we discussed before we hit the record button that we were going to do this. And as always, I
1: cannot emphasize enough, No preparation went into actually what we're going to say. My elevator speech for the Society of Reform Podcasters is better than when you asked me to give the elevator speech version of Nestorianism. And I went on for like (laughs) 25 minutes about what Nestorianism was.
0: Yeah, that was a classic episode. The definitive episode on Nestorianism. Yes. As I recall. So yeah that's great. So is there there is a mega feed right for there all the, is if a you want to get feed. like everything?
1: Yeah, if you search for the Society of Reform Podcasters on just about any uh, major podcast software, uh, you're going to find the show. If you subscribe to it, you get the entire back catalog of all of the shows plus all of the new content that any of our member shows uh, produce as it comes. So if you're already subscribed to all seven feeds, just go ahead and cancel those, subscribe to the mega feed, you'll still get all the same good content. Or better yet, stay subscribed to all of them and listen to everything twice.
0: There you go. Listen, people, the mega feed is actually super cool. Yeah. Like it really is a great way to get everything and know that you're not missing anything. Yeah. And you're going to get a lot of different voices. It's actually really interesting because everybody's a little bit diverse. And so yeah. you're going to get lots of interesting perspectives on lots of wonderful reform theology. Yes. So that that was like bonus affirmation. Like that's that alone would be worth the price of admission of this podcast, which was $0. Yes. Actually, any currency, absolutely 0 so as if to add to that, if we've, as if we could engender even more value, let's do a little affirmations and denials. And I'm going to ask you, Tony, do you want to do denials or affirmations first?
1: Let's start with denials. And why don't you go first? this <laughs> Oh,
0: okay. I see how it is. Kicking it back to me. Toss so in the world of COVID-19, I'm going with denying against the understanding of wearing masks. Now, as, as people, as, as states, as countries begin to come into this place, of the reopening, lots of businesses and lots of corporate gatherings, I've heard a little bit of chatter, if you will, like a little bit of scuttlebutt at the water cooler, as it were, about why we wear masks. And I've heard a lot of people say like, well, I look out there, I went to this event, nobody else is wearing a mask, so I'm not going to wear it because I'm totally comfortable. And so I'm denying against this misunderstanding that the mask somehow is to protect you from other people. Whereas it's actually to protect other people from you. Yes. So like the most loving thing that you can do, I think we said this a couple of times is just wear the mask. Like I know it's inconvenient. I know it's uncomfortable, but in fact it's actually to protect your germs. Like you spitting from going on everybody else. So I'm kind of denying against this misunderstanding of like the mask somehow is a barrier that protects you, whether rather is a barrier that protects other people From your craziness.
1: Yeah. You know, I had a conversation with someone today and I don't have permission to share their name, so I'm not going to, who told me that their church has begun to meet in person. However, their church is not requiring their congregants to wear masks. And so they do not feel comfortable returning to the gather, uh, gathered body of worship because there are people in the congregation not wearing masks and they don't feel. Interesting. So You're absolutely right that wearing masks, we talked about this, was it last week? Yeah, it was last week. We talked about this last week that like, it's the stupidest, smallest, most insignificant inconvenience to wear a mask. And it can be a way that you not only can concretely love your neighbor, but you can outwardly communicate to your neighbor that you love yes, them, you care about their right. safety. And there are at least one one family in the world that I know who's not feeling comfortable coming back to their their gathered congregational worship because the church is not willing to take that small sacrifice. Um, so just just wear a mask. Like I get it. Sometimes you forget it in your car or you don't have it with you and you, you have to make do. Like nobody's going to throw rocks at, well, I suppose in some parts of the country they might, but like, I'm not going (laughs) to throw rocks at you for forgetting your mask or, or not having it with you. Or, you know, like I have surgical masks. I work at the hospital. So I get a new surgical mask every morning. I put that in my car. I have extras with me, but like sometimes like the one I'm wearing the strap rips and now I don't have a mask anymore. Like no one's going to look at you and say, I can't believe how terrible of a person you are that you don't have it, but you should still wear it to not be a terrible person.
0: Right. Yeah, well, I think this is about like again understanding like what is the thing that establishes why you wear it. And this yeah. is actually like a test for our hearts, I think in many ways. And in fairness, the reason I bring it up is because maybe some people haven't thought about it in this way before. That again, it's not about who i am trying to protect but those i'm trying to protect against me. And in some ways like this is like we can't even get into this because we only have an hour, but this idea of like what is sin? Like the sin that i commit how it affects others in the body of Christ. Yeah. And here's like this wonderful example of something that we can do for ourselves that really is about protecting those whom we love. And and i think you're right. It does make a statement. It really does. Yeah. And so by getting this into our mind that when we do this, it's about protecting and loving others. I think, or at least I hope that it'll change the, I would say like the fervency with which people undertake the idea of like, yeah, it's uncomfortable. Like, yeah, it bends my ears down. Or like, in my case, it makes my beard look like super funky. Like after a while, like it it pushes it out. But the bottom, like that's a small, no, nobody's resonating with that right now. It's a small price to pay, but it is in fact a wonderful price to pay to show that you are loving others. So please just put on the mask. In fact, like the mask is also in some ways, like a wonderful way to express yourself. I don't know. Put 1689 across it, whatever you want to do to like express yourself.
1: Yeah. How, how how many times do you get to like, I've been really interesting, interested to see the different kinds of masks and the different expressions that are sometimes put on those masks. (laughs) Like just throw 1646 across there and see who asks you what that means. (laughs) Like seriously, <laughs> like it's a good way to go. Yeah, I, I agree. And like here's here just like I said, I'm not a scientist, but th- this is the science behind it in real simple terms. Is Hit me. let's pretend that uh, in order for someone to get sick, they need to inhale one thousand droplets that contain COVID COVID nineteen. Right.
0: Okay. I'm with you.
1: And let's say you have COVID nineteen, and by breathing, you expel a hundred uh, droplets per second. Well, if a person is standing face-to-face with you with nothing inhibiting those droplets, they're likely to inhale a 1,000 droplets and become sick in 10 seconds. These are made-up numbers. This isn't really what's going on. But that's that's the the principle. Now, let's pretend you put a mask on and you still exhale right. those 100 droplets, but only two of them are able to make it outside of the mask. Right,
0: Well, exactly. now you've
1: taken that ability for them to get infected and made it almost impossible because there's no way they're going to stand in front of you and inhale... You know, a, a thousand droplets at two droplets per second. Like that's a huge amount of time they'd have to sit in front of you. So then right. you add in the six feet social distancing. I mean, there's a lot more that goes into it. But that's the idea: is that it, you know, face to face conversation is risky because the longer you're interacting with someone, the more droplets you're you're inhaling, and the mask simply keeps those droplets from expiring into the air in a way that other people can can breathe them in. Yes. So it's exactly. not about.
0: Go ahead. Right, we're used to thinking about masks as, a, as if like that it's a thing that like we're thinking about, like some kind of something in the air that you don't want to breathe in is like right. protecting us. But we're, we're focusing from the other way around. So it's not like we're certainly not saying, although, again, we are definitely we're a verified top 50 healthcare podcast. We're definitely not <laughs> saying that this is what protects you from like ingesting or breathing in some kind of particle or right. virus, but it's just about protection. So this is going to be, this is the last thing I'll say, and this is actually a horrible place to end, but now I got it in my mind and I cannot not talk about it with you. So I read an article and I'm about to push the limits of what is potentially like appropriate for our podcast. (laughs) Everybody's on the edge of their seats now by way of metaphor of this whole COVID thing and wearing the mask. So I read this very interesting article from a reputable source that compared this all to like, what if everybody was just walking around society this is the first place we're pushing back without pants on, and then what if they just like peed wherever they wanted to, <laughs> right? So like, and now, now hear me out because I realize this is ridiculous, but it's like this is kind of like it's exactly what you're saying. Now, if that were the case, and like you could just walk around and like urinate wherever you wanted to, I understand this is a little bit grotesque. Eventually, you are going to get covered in somebody else's urine, like that. That's almost inevitable. But imagine the difference, of course, if not only if you're wearing pants, but everybody else is wearing pants such that like now, if they do urinate wherever they want to, it's being collected or at least contained to some extent in their own person. That's kind of what we're talking
1: about here. All right. So what am I denying today? (laughs) Yes.
0: Thank you for making your own transition. I don't
1: know where to go from there. I There's guess nowhere. I'm denying it, metaphors that involve everyone peeing <laughs> all over everyone else indiscriminately.
0: I'm just saying it was very memorable. And I was like, yes, like as if the sixth commandment weren't enough. I, when I read that, I was like, yes, done. I'm just going to put on the mask.
1: So let's, let's just hover here for a second. <laughs> Should we though? <laughs> I, I'm not sure this is something that needs a metaphor. Like, do we need a metaphor? I, I agree. Because, like, if everyone just sneezed wherever they want, then there'd be germs everywhere. So we wear masks but, but I think, so that when we sneeze, like, there's no that's germs. That's the power
0: of this. I think the power of this, the reason why the article was written that way is to kind of say, like, this is equivalent to you coughing or talking or sneezing on somebody. And I was like, you are right. That That's a way of, like, elevating and helping
1: us to appreciate that this is like a serious thing, which which I think is the point. So you're, you're right on. So there are two things that you should not – three things you should not make metaphors of. The trinity, <laughs> the incarnation, and apparently how surgical masks work.
0: <laughs> yes, I cannot wait to get wow. all of the emails who just from people who have just said, you turned what seemed to be a family podcast <laughs> into something now I have to explain to my we children. We did
1: have that one person who unsubscribed from the show and made it known to us on iTunes – When we talked about how on Family Feud, the thing you don't want to say to people is smell my farting butt. So apparently that that wasn't even us. There are some sensitive individuals who used to listen to our show. That's true. Well, hopefully they're all weeded out now.
0: So, yes, save us. If you don't like it,
1: unsubscribe. Hashtag unsubscribe. Save right. us! So, hit
0: yes. me with your denial.
1: So, my my denial is somewhat related to your denial in that I'm just denying the news cycle. So, there's this uh, phenomenon that happens, and it's ever increasingly faster. And I, I I actually did this experiment, right? So, everyone remembers, but no one would think of uh, Cecil the lion, right? So, a couple of years ago, I don't remember how years, many years ago, probably four oh, years that's ago. Right. Some some guy went out on a hunting trip in Africa and shot this beloved lion named Cecil and and the whole world lost their mind about this lion that got shot. And you know what? I don't I don't like animals being killed for sport. I don't I mean, I don't think there's anything sinful with it. But I'm just I don't appreciate the sport. I get it, but I said to someone at work who was who was just losing their mind about the fact that Cecil the lion got shot, this guy should be put in the electric chair they should they should shoot him, they should allow people to hunt I mean like totally losing their mind. I said, in one year you will not remember that this happened like in one year, no one is going to care that Cecil the lion got shot, and she she swore to me that 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 that, that was not true. she was going to remember it, and so i because I am a pedantic individual, <laughs> I put a reminder in my phone for one year and I walked so up to her and I said word. to her, uh, her name is not Jennifer, but I'm going to use the name Jennifer. I said, Jennifer, what happened one year ago today? And she said, uh, I don't know what, what happened one year ago today. And I said, one year ago today, I, I guaranteed you that you wouldn't remember a year from now that Cecil the Lion got shot. And she just looked at me and then she was like, I can't believe that we forgot this. Like we should remember that. <laughs> so I'm just denying the news cycle because that's good right now. Like the news is obsessed with the actually, you know what? This isn't even true. Like when's the last time anyone heard a major news report about race relations and riots in the country? Like the last thing I saw on Facebook was that in Seattle, they knocked over a statue of George Washington and put a burning flag over his head. But like, honestly, like it's a bunch of white people who've created like a a demilitarized zone in Seattle or in Portland or something like even the racial issues that are going on in the country. We're not even really talking about it as much as in the way we were a week ago. So like the news cycle is built. In a way that builds up this fervor because the news organiz- – I sound like the biggest conspiracy theorist in the world here. But like the news organizations have ad revenue and the way they need right. to get their ad revenue is to get their viewers up. And so they they thrive on controversy and they have to keep the controversy yes. going. And so as yes. soon as the controversy starts to die down, they have to go on to the next controversy. So whether right. it was – Michael Jackson dying, Cecil the lion, Harambe, the the gorilla, that crocodile or alligator that ate that little girl at Disney World, which is terrible, you know, but like whatever whatever the flavor of the week is, coronavirus, when's the last time we heard a major news report about coronavirus? Right. Like it, like we're still in the middle of a pandemic and the news isn't even really talking about it anymore. Right. So like I'm denying the news cycle because the news is supposed to be about informing the population what's going on in the world in a way that helps them make decisions about their life. Like that's the original intent of news media. And it's just not that anymore. And you, you can go into like – cable 24 hour news channels and, and like how they've played into it. But the fact is, is that the news doesn't work like the news is supposed to work anymore. It's all about controversy. It's all about fear. It's all about making sure that they're able to generate their ad revenue to keep people for keep people making money. And I'm not opposed to making money. People got to, people got to eat. They got to pay their bills. They got to keep the lights on. But like it just sometimes it doesn't make sense. Just turn off the news. Like, like it's not helping anyone anymore
0: right. Sorry. You're Hashtag cracking me up because over. no, no, it's fine. You're cracking me up because there's a couple of things that came to mind. One is that I thought you were about to go into more money, more problems. I really <laughs> thought that's what you're about to say is your conclusion. I'm, like, a I'm huge, not against money.
1: I'm a huge biggie fan,
0: <laughs> but you know, more money, more problems. Yeah. The second thing is we have to address this because somebody will say something in the Facebook group or email us. And that is, we do have to talk about how you first referred to the line as Cecil, and then every instance after that referred to as Cecil. So, which one are you subscribing to? <laughs> uh,
1: it's like Augustine and Augustine. I always yes. want to say I always yes. want to say Augustine because that's probably the correct way to say it. Exactly. But I remembered halfway through that most people say Cecil, and it. No,
0: I, I appreciate that you course correct. It's like is it Basil or is it Basil?
1: It's definitely Basil. A hundred percent. It's Basil.
0: Wait, wait, are so telling me, like. Are we talking when,
1: about the herb in your cabinet or are we talking about the fourth century theologian? Because there's well, a this, difference.
0: Th- th- I mean, at this point, we've totally jettisoned anything like the Reformed Brotherhood podcast. <laughs> because now we're just like straight into like conversations about language. I have to ask, what are you talking about? Because I would say like, isn't it one and the same? No, no, it's not. I don't know. I no, feel no, like No, 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 no.
1: It's clear. When you say, when you're talking about the little, the little grass leaf herb thing in your cabinet okay, that go you ahead. use to season your food. What do you say? You say basil. Okay. Right. That's because it's not a Greek word. Like you're not, but basil the great in, in the fourth <laughs> century, it's a Greek word. It's so like, there's a pronunciation <laughs> that comes with it from it being a Greek word. Alpha is a, uh. is a short a sound. So it's basil the great.
0: Listen, fine. I will allow it. I'm totally down with that. I just like saying Basil anyway, because it sounds yeah. super awesome. It's true.
1: Let's uh, let's get on to some affirmations.
0: Yeah, man. That was like the lo- the longest denials that we've done in quite some time. So Except that really time quick. we
1: ended up having an entire show that was based on my denial <laughs> un- inadvertently.
0: That was great, though. So it's I'll true. keep this really, really quick. There's something though that unique about this affirmation that is I'm about to affirm something that I've never used that I can't use. And that I'm not even sure I would actually ever use once it becomes available to me. So you ready for this? Yes. Okay. So I'm affirming a brand new form of email that is going to be released to the public. At least I would say in the next couple of months, it's called Hey mail, H E A Y. Hey.com it's a totally new way to do email. And the reason why I say that I don't know that I would ever use it is because it costs $99 a year. But here's the thing. I, I found out about this through another website. I went to this website, Hey.com, which I encourage everybody actually to check out. And then I watched a video from the founder and the video is 30 minutes. It's a 30 minute video introducing everything about HeyMail. And why anybody would choose to watch a 30-minute video about somebody's project about email is beyond me. And that's what I thought, except that I somehow ended up watching a 30-minute video about email, and I was blown away. I actually think that this is probably the most novel, unique, efficient, and wonderful approach to email that I've seen in a long time. And I don't know that I would ever pay $99 for it. However, I actually think there might be value in this. So I'm affirming with this new form of email called Heymail because there's an amazing amount of features, which I won't even get into here. Just go and check it out because I think that it's actually – I wish that all email was like this. Super interesting. Have you heard about this?
1: So I think that we have made history on the Reform Brotherhood podcast – In that this may be the first time ever that you have introduced a technological topic and said, (laughs) have you heard about this? And I have to say, no, I have not heard about this.
0: Okay, I have to be honest with you. I thought where you were going with that is we were about to have a reprisal of the whole popcorn thing with the coconut oil. I thought you were going to be like, you've already recommended this I do have to
1: say, it's funny. I pulled up the website quick on my tablet while you're talking and it says, got 37 minutes. Really curious. (laughs) Here's the full product walkthrough.
0: That's so that's what happened to me is I was like, I will watch 30 seconds of this. And the thing is, it's it's so captivating. It's not even about like the person presenting it. Well, he talks about in terms of like, do you hate the emails like this? I was like, yes, I do. (laughs) And then he would go through like how they corrected that. This product has actually corrected a lot of things. We're not getting like any benefit from me saying this. And yet again, it's it's super expensive. I think $99 for an email address is pretty pricey. And yet at the same time, I cannot tell you how tempted I was to try to make that investment, which I haven't made. But I actually think that the points that this guy makes, the founder is the one who's presenting that video is so dramatic that it's like really, really impressive and convincing. And so I actually hope that this is like the first step in many that will move us toward like email that is like usable. He actually talks about how like email is just not enjoyable anymore. It's meant to be a form of communication that's useful and productive and fruitful and that they're trying to re- to return us back to that. I actually think they do. It's, so I'm, I'm just curious for other people's opinion, I guess, at this point, and especially yours. You should watch it. When you have a free 37 minutes.
1: Oh, I'm a hundred percent going to waste 37 <laughs> minutes of my life to watch this. I would just like to say though, $99 a year is one cent per hour.
0: Oh yeah. So it's, it's not cheap, but here's the thing. No, as no, no. I, no. I was think, saying that
1: is actually, I think that's relatively affordable. Oh, you
0: think, you think that's actually good if pricing. If you like think good that value. this
1: saves you and whatever this is, I have no idea what this product is it looks like it's a way to basically like filter out junk mail in a really advanced way. But if it saves you enough time to merit out one cent per hour, then it's worth it by definition. Right?
0: Sure. Well, so again, I don't want to elongate this, but I am. So here's the thing is like, it starts with that concept of like, isn't this a better way to like filter everything? In fact, like one of the first big selling points is when you set up this email address, anything that comes through the first time anybody emails you, it actually goes into a filter that says like, how do you want to handle this nonsense? Do you want to accept as something important or do you not want to? And at first I was like, okay, that's cool. All the stuff that happens thereafter is pretty awesome. So that's why like, I think you'll start to watch it. And if you have any interest and from like our perspective, like where we're getting email from lots of people and we're trying to filter out, Like, I want to know if we're getting an award for being a top 50 healthcare podcast. Like, I want that to be the important thing I see. It's true. So, everything else, you know, like the voicemail is like, yeah, that's important. But are we getting an award from the voicemail? If not, that goes to like a secondary. But it's very impressive. It's very impressive.
1: I would just like to say they call their inbox the inbox. I am box. (laughs) I knew you Um, were going to hit that. (laughs) Anyone that builds their product based on an elaborate pun is good in my books. And, so. and does
0: it say, did you see like why they call it that? Yeah.
1: Cause it's important. It's immediate. Yes. It's yeah. It's,
0: I, it's pretty, honestly, here's the thing. Like you and I are both nerds with efficiency and productivity. That's what one more over to this. Like if you watch it, you, they make this such, they make email such an efficient, clean and productive tool that like, you're like, wow, I can't, my, it made my, it made me feel like my Gmail was like just like it was the wild West. It was like straight chaos compared to this. So We've already spent far too much time on this, but just go check it out. Hey.com. That's what I'm affirming with. And again, I'm affirming this, not even having used it. I can't even use it yet because it's not entirely available to everybody, but it's coming out. I think also there's like different pricing levels and I think you can get a two letter email address, but it's like $500 a year.
1: Yeah. The ultra short email address that they're advertising. All right, I need to turn off my tablet because I'm going to get sucked into this rabbit hole where we're trying to podcast. It's super
0: interesting. So hit me with your affirmation. What do you got?
1: So my affirmation is... better than yours in that it's not gonna <laughs> oh, it's wow, not gonna wow. send us down a line of just a line straight of thought out the gate that prevents us from finishing the episode so <laughs> <laughs> i'm affirming uh i've made reference to this pastor in in maine before his name is stephen tracy and he's uh an opc minister um he's just a super faithful local pastor in, in kind of out-country Maine. He's a pastor uh, at Lakewood Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And I don't even know how many, I almost said episodes, but that's not right. I don't even know how many sermons he preached on the book of Revelation, but he just finished or is almost finished with his Revelation series. And it is one of the best treatments of the book of Revelation that I've ever heard. So wow, go, to, go to go um, to sermonaudio.com. Look up Lakewood Orthodox Presbyterian Church or Stephen Tracy, Stephen with a PH, uh, and look up his Revelation series. It's excellent. It, I mean, it's just really, really stellar. And he's one of those preachers, you know, this isn't Reformed Preaching cast, but he exemplifies everything that Joel Beakey is talking about in the book, Reformed Preaching. He's he's charming and funny in a way that lowers your defenses. But not in like a gimmicky yuck yuck way where he's he's making stupid jokes and he's got gimmicks going on. He's just funny. And, and there's times where like he has a turn of phrase that catches him by surprise on the on the in the pulpit. And he kind of stops to kind of chuckle at the own turn of phrase that he didn't intend. But it's kind of funny. And I've had the pleasure of interacting with him in person at at a presbytery meeting I was a, a guest visitor at. He's just a really good, faithful, local pastor, and he's an excellent preacher. And Revelation is one of those books that a lot of pastors never even approach because of how difficult it is. But he just makes it really understandable and applies it to his congregation in a way that just... The Book of Revelation's hard and he he makes it easy. He makes it understandable and he, he applies it in a way where it shows that the book of Revelation is there to encourage the churches it's written to, but by extension, all of the local churches in existence throughout eternity in the church age. So check it out. Stephen Tracy, he just finished his Revelation series. It's excellent. So I'm I will affirm that all day and 27 times on the Lord's Day. <laughs> 107 times on the Lord's day.
0: Well, well done. I like you taking that to the next level. Actually, you know, one of the things I appreciate about our conversations is I think there's something unique in being able to recommend preachers that are, have a strong fidelity to the scriptures that are serving God in the exegetical study in the proclamation of the scriptures, but that are unknown. There's like a great value in that. Like this is the power of the internet of conversation that spreads across geography and cultures. So I appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. I think that's a really good recommendation.
1: I've said it before. You know, I say this as a podcaster who's hoping you don't unsubscribe from our show to to do this, but your your mix of what you're listening to should absolutely include good local preachers because sure. the preacher in the next town over from you is more likely to be preaching and applying the scriptures- to life that actually is similar to what you're going through than the preacher in on the other side of the country. John MacArthur is an excellent preacher. Matt Chandler is an excellent preacher, you know, John Piper. There's all these excellent preachers out there, but they're, you know, what John Piper is preaching about in, in Minneapolis or John MacArthur in California or Matt Chandler in Dallas, like that's not probably what is happening in my world in rural New England But what Stephen Tracy is preaching and and addressing and responding to and applying the scriptures to in rural Maine is a heck of a lot closer to what I'm dealing with in rural New Hampshire than any of those three people. So obviously your local, your pastor should be the primary preaching you're receiving. There's a special God ordained function that that man has in your life that no one else in the world has, but sort of as you go out in concentric circles from there, I think your podcasting or your sermon casting diet should increasingly include people who are local to you, more and more local to you.
0: Right. That's a really good point. Again, I think that that's like that by itself, once again, is worth the price of this podcast. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And if you have to unsubscribe to our show to listen to a local pastor, then you have Jesse and I's full blessing to do so.
0: Do that thing.
1: Absolutely. But but please don't.
0: Well, with that said, let's get into what we're talking about let's do on this it. episode. And so we've decided by way of the the large amount of time that we spent uh, kind of focusing our efforts in trying to discern what we'd speak about, that <laughs> we were going to do a two-part series here. So we're going to do one episode now, and then in two weeks, we're going to have a perform um, preaching book cast in between these two, just to whet the appetite, yeah. just to build all of the excitement. But we're calling this series Freedom to Believe, and it's going to be two parts. And first, I want to talk a little bit about depravity and common grace. And then in the second episode, which will be, or the second part of the series, it'll be two weeks from now, we're going to talk about free will versus free agency. And and the reason I want to talk about this is really to kind of address some of the fundamental questions of evangelism. I would say like evangelistic pursuits, but also our understanding of salvation. Yeah. And I realize that we've talked a lot around this topic, but maybe not explicitly about yeah. this topic. And I want to start with this idea that we need to ask like some of the right questions, especially as people are asking questions right now about what it means to be saved and how people are drawn to Christ, what it means to pursue the gospel. And so I think the real point of dispute, I'm just going to throw it right out there. We're coming out hot out of the gate the real point of dispute between Armenians and Calvinists is not so much this idea of the nature of God and his will, but the nature of man and his. And so like the question, does the Bible teach that people have the power and initiative within their own will to believe the gospel? So in other words, the question is not, are people morally responsible for their actions? I think the Bible is pretty clear that we are and that we're responsible to God for every act of will that we work and perform. In addition, like the question is not, well, do people have the opportunity to believe? Because the Bible declares that we do. God made himself known to all people, either in nature and conscience or the gospel, and so that we are all without excuse. The question fundamentally is, do people have freedom of the will by which they're able to believe? That's the thing that I wanted us to get after.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, this is, this is a topic, and we've, we've mentioned this and spoken about this in the past, this is a topic where kind of new Calvinists, and I don't mean like new Calvinism in terms of like the movement, but like right. people who are new to Reformed theology, they get it wrong in a way that actually hurts our cause. Like it hurts, sure. it hurts our ability to interact with and converse with the rest of the Christian world, in that we we sometimes portray the uh, constitution or the ability of. Unregenerate man, as though you know, we're just robots that God has programmed, and there's no freedom in in humans in order to choose anything. And, and the reason that that hurts evangelism and the reason that that hurts it is because we can become the caricature that Arminians accuse us of being, right? So, sure. the, the Arminian a, approach to say. That, well, if Calvinism's true, then evangelism is pointless because everyone who's going to believe does, and there's no culpability either way. Because if you're not going to believe, it's because you were predestined not to believe and therefore had no ability to believe. That's Arminianism's caricature of Christianity or uh, of Calvinism, a little Freudian right. slip there. Um <laughs> but if we're not careful as Calvinists, and, and I don't say this to like bash on the newer Calvinists, but people who are new to Calvinism tend to actually play into that with the way they explain how the, the human will works. Right. So I think this is a good topic for us to approach because it is something that those who are newer to Reformed thinking and Reformed theology really struggle with because it's, it's difficult. It's complicated stuff.
0: Yeah, and I hope we'll get like a little bit technical over these next two episodes. I mean, I'm sure that doesn't cause you any chagrin to say that. Yes. Because I think there's a lot here for us to process. And like, even if we start like by way of example, I really believe that the capacity that is like the will to believe is essential to the understanding of the accomplishment and the application of salvation. How we understand that, at least how we process it in our own minds, does, of course, impact not only how we understand, I would say, like not only how we... Come to terms with what the rest of the scripture says about salvation, but how we behave with yeah. respect to how we interact with others. And so, like, I, just to start with, I want to bring some scripture into this conversation so that we can kind of use this as a context or maybe as a springboard. And so, I want to read from John 3. I'm going to start at verse 14. And of course, you're going to hear that very common verse in the midst of this, but it's bookended, I think, by a larger context, which is really important. So, this is beginning in verse 14, John 3. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believed in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Yeah. And so I think like when we read that in the larger context, what we should see initially is that this passage says nothing about the will or capability of man to actually believe in God. It says only that those who are the believer, the believing ones will be the ones who are saved. So I think we have to ask, what does this all mean then? Is, what does it mean to say there is freedom to believe or a lack of freedom to believe?
1: Yeah, and this is this is where it gets complicated, right? Because on one hand, depending how we talk about it, um unregenerate man is not free to believe. And that 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 lack of freedom to believe is not a lack of ability in many senses. It's a lack of desire, right? It's a right. lack of the desire or the will to believe. And you know, when we talk about action, like this is going to get kind of technical, but when we talk about a person acting, doing something, there's a preceding event that happens in their metaphysical reality of willing, right? So if I want to start a podcast, right, in in kind of macro terms, if I want to start a podcast, I have to have a desire to do that. And if I have that desire to do that, then I have to have the desire to do each individual step. So let, let's take an example from my own life. Like I want to lose weight, right? I, I, I'm not a big, giant, fat dude, but I'm also not a skinny dude, and I, I'm not a healthy weight, and I'm, I'm, I'm able to acknowledge that, right?
0: Well, we just got really real here. And
1: we did get really real, <laughs> but I want to lose weight. But in order okay. to lose weight, like that's not a single act. Right. That's not a single thing that I can will to do. I can't just sit in a room and will to lose weight. So then I have to break that ultimate act of losing weight into individual sort of smaller, discrete acts. And then I have to have a will to engage in each of those discrete acts. So one of those component acts might be to uh, to eat less calories than I uh, than I consume or to burn more calories than I consume, eat less calories than the energy output that I'm having. The other act might be that I need to exercise to increase that. So I've got these two acts. I have to have a will that engages to do both of those things before I can actually do those things. And so every act that we make has all of these components to it that our will has to engage. And that's where we talk about the lack of freedom in humans to choose to serve God or to choose to be saved or to choose to do spiritually good things is that our will does never never does engage to accomplish yes. those spiritually good things there's yes. always a mixture of sinful desires and sinful motives along with potentially righteous desires but as, as a non-Christian, as someone who has no regenerate will, we have no way to engage in any righteous desires. So everything we do, even if it outwardly matches up with the law of God or outwardly matches up with the same acts that might bring us to Christ, since our will is not engaged to do those things, we never can accomplish them.
0: I know this is not what you're trying to do, but I feel like you're trying to provoke me to use that phrase, which apparently I use so <laughs> much on this podcast. But I'm not I'm not gonna say it. I will not give in. But here's the thing, you're right on. That's exactly what I was thinking too, as we were trying to evaluate this, is this idea that like when we say depravity, like this idea of like total depravity, what we're talking about is I think sometimes that like, gets relegated to like this just like ephemeral, really theological term. But it's it's not just that, just this idea that like there's a moral disposition or an inclination of yeah. fall on man's nature toward evil and against good. It's that the principle of sin like the essential nature of sin is a moral pollution moral pollution such that man is like actually opposed to what right. is true and righteous so it's, it's like we're actively pushing against everything that's good. It's not like we're, we're just passively not willing to accept it, but that we are willing to fight against it, to use our resources of energy and time and focus to actually push against everything that is God, everything that is good, everything that is in his moral and righteous character. Yes. And so when you, I think when you look at it that way, it's not just the fact that like, well, we didn't have the right opportunity. You know, maybe like if we were more empowered to believe than we would in fact believe it's that like, we're willing to muster all of our resources in an entire army against us from the inside out to say, not only do I not want God, but I'm willing to fight actively against his will.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The example that I've used in the past is imagine that you come home from work and when you get home from work, someone is waiting in your apartment with a gun. And they they point the gun at you and say, you're going to do everything that I tell you to do or I'm going to shoot you. Now, if they were to tell you to do something that's contrary to what you wanted to do. So they say, um, I want you to to take your favorite thing in the home and I want you to smash it. I want you to take your wedding ring and I want you to crush it into pieces, right? Well, you may do that, but you're doing that opposed to your will. You're doing that in a way that is compelled against your will. Right. Your ordinary circumstances, your will will not be to crush your favorite object. But if they were then to say, you know, there's a piece of chocolate cake in your fridge and if you don't eat it, I'm going to shoot you. Then there's actually probably for most of us a sense of relief. That's like I wanted to eat that piece of chocolate cake anyways. Right. No concept. So I have no problem complying with the will of this person who's who's threatening me because they, they told me to do something I wanted to do anyways. And that's where we find ourselves as. Unregenerate Christians, unregenerate people, right? right? Is we have this temptation, and the temptation assails us, but that temptation is something we already wanted to do, right? Because whether it's whether it's sexual temptation or temptation to be prideful or temptation to be greedy or any other sinful temptation, the ultimate temptation is fight against God, resist God, right? Overthrow the sovereign of the universe by exercising your will. That's the fundamental root of sin: is that we desire to be God, and so we we do whatever we can to exercise creaturely autonomy in some attempt to be God. Right. So when whether it's the devil or just circumstances that assail us and say, "Do this sinful thing," we're like, "Great, I I wanted to do that anyways." And that's the difference: is that as a Christian. Or as someone who now has been effectually called by the Holy Spirit, when now th- this is the conversion moment, right? This is the difference, I think, between Arminian and um, Calvinist theology is in Arminian theology when the gospel is preached. It's kind of like this moment where it's like, well, I wanted to fight against God, but now the argument has just been made so compellingly that I'm going to accept the argument and turn to God. But in Calvinist theology, what's actually happened is the Holy Spirit has prepared our wills. So now, now instead of the bad guy in our apartment, who's saying, you know, crush your favorite object and you're like, I don't want to do it, but I guess I have to, or saying eat the chocolate cake and you're like, great. I want to do that anyways. Now what we have is our best friend coming to us and saying, I made this cake for you. Could you please eat it for me? Because I love you. And you're like, great. Mm. I love cake. I'm going to eat the cake. And the cake is <laughs> salvation. <laughs> <laughs> is uh,
0: it, is this has already turned out to be the best of ninety two episodes. The, the, the
1: ultimate idea is that in salvation, um, I'll look up at the confession in a second here, but what happens in regeneration is not just that the Holy Spirit somehow convinces us to follow Jesus. That's certainly part right, of it. Right. But but a more fundamental level is that the Holy Spirit not only enables us to follow Jesus and persuades us to follow Jesus, but he persuades us to follow Jesus, who's freely offered to us in the gospel. That That word freely right. is important. It's not as though the Holy Spirit is holding a gun to our head and saying, follow Jesus or else. What's happening is the Holy Spirit is saying, Here's this beautiful, amazing thing that I've now built a desire for you to have. Yes. You, I've built this, this desire in you to have, and now I'm presenting to you to take. And so we then take a hold of that thing the Holy Spirit is presenting to us because he's also built that desire for us to do so.
0: And the cake is salvation. <laughs>
1: Is that, was, that was the best part of that.
0: But you're, that's absolutely true because, and I want to kind of just like jump on that because I think that's so profound. This idea that like when we, when we come to Christ by his saving power, the Holy Spirit in our lives, what's happening is we are given a freedom that is not just about like primarily ourselves. It's not like it's just freedom is all about in Christianity, just being like breaking the chain of, chains of oppression so that we can somehow live like a better life now. It's the idea going back to the Old Testament where we see like the Israelites being extracted from Egypt, yes. that they're being saved to worship, that like all of life is meant to worship and to fall under the authority of a loving God who has made you for a relationship with Him. And we can't even realize in our own civilness, in this pervasive or extensive depravity, which impacts both mind, emotion, and will, that that is what we're made for. And so when God releases us from that, it's not, again, just so that we can be more comfortable, but that we can be better worshipers. And in the worshiping, of course, we find the greatest amount of comfort and peace that passes all of this understanding that we thought that we had before that point. And so I I think that that's like what we need to really try to like really funnel down on is that this idea of that, you know, anybody who says like, well, There is a full freedom of expression to choose and to will. I would counter with, well, are you free then to not sin? Like, is there something within your nature to like, I'm I'm kind of moving ahead a little bit, even into that second week, but is there something within our nature that allows us to see Christ in the fullness of his beauty, by faith at least, so that we might choose him? And I think the scripture is really clear that invariably, inevitably, without pause, without pause... We reject the truth. Yes. And and I came across this more recently because I was thinking about the examples of those in the Old Testament or in the New Testament that we might draw from and say like, well, truly these are men and women of God who from like the very, I would say like part from the time that we're introduced to them. They recognize Christ, and so I think that many of us would draw, for instance, like somebody like the Apostle John, and say, like, "Well, John, if anybody, the, the disciple whom who Christ loved, here is one who saw Jesus initially for who he was and what he was, and and recognized him and embraced him, and all of that was incumbent in his relationship with him." And I was blown away because I was just reading the first chapter of John recently, and I just want to read like a couple of verses because this this so like bowled me over that I was like, "How have I not seen this before?" So this is first the not first John, but John one. Uh, beginning of verse 29, a couple verses. So this is, says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, and I love this, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. So right there, I think we're initially like, here we go. Of course, this is affirming the recency bias that I had with my understanding of John. John knew Jesus Right. John's expressing not just who Jesus was as a man, but fully as truly the son of God. He recognizes here is the lamb of God, the son of God who comes on a mission to take away all the sin of the world. But this is what the rest of the verse says. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore a witness saying, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So in other words, though John the Baptist probably may have had previous personal contact with Jesus, like we get more perspective on that in Luke, he did not know Jesus who was this Lamb, the Son of God, until the Spirit identified him. And if that's true of John, like we have to ask, I think, fairly, how much more true is that of every other Christian that's followed, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the fact is that we often think of freedom as freedom to do whatever we want. And there's right. a yes. There's a certain level of uh truth to that in terms of how it is. That we can philosophically construct the idea of freedom, right? Jonathan Edwards, although I have some disagreements with certain things in in J. Ed's theory uh, theology, (laughs) Jonathan Edwards has this brilliant understanding of the difference between the freedom uh, – what kind of is commonly understood as as freedom is freedom is um, the ability to do anything. The freedom to have unrestricted options in front of you. Like that's kind of the the way that – people understand freedom. But Jonathan Edwards following after the reformed tradition has this great way that he talks about freedom. And and this is in, uh, in his freedom of the will freedom is actually the freedom to, to follow your own will, to, to engage in the acts that are according to your will, right. Without restriction, unencumbered. And that is something that's really important for us to understand because in the Christian life, we've talked about this before, Christian liberty is not primarily about freedom to just do whatever you want. It's not about freedom to drink or not drink or freedom to smoke cigars or not smoke cigars to get tattoos or or not not, wear a mask, right. To wear a mask or not wear a mask to attend this church or that church. All of those things are, are contained within the concept of Christian liberty, but true Christian liberty is about freedom from compulsion to sin, right? So When we become saved, we are now suddenly freed from this compulsion to sin. Not completely, not entirely, but now we go from being utterly unable to do anything that is not sin, right? Adam in the garden either could sin or could not sin. He had the choice to sin or to not sin. After the fall, we no longer had any freedom to do anything that was not sin. Right. And that, that's a hard pill for a lot of us to swallow, because we look back at times where we had a choice between not sinning and sinning, and we chose not to sin, even even in our pre-regenerate state. You know, there are times where I can look back before I was a Christian. Um, there's actually this really stark example, and I remember I was, I was in a situation where I could either choose to look on a girl that I knew lustfully, um, or I could choose to avert my eyes. And I don't know why I was like a, like a 13 year old kid. And for some reason I chose to avert my eyes and I can look at that and say, well, I did the outward action that was not sinful, but I did it begrudgingly. There was something in me that wanted to do it. And so even my outward act of avoiding, avoiding laying my eyes on something that would cause me to act lustfully or to think lustfully, even in that act, I was doing it for reasons that I actually don't fully understand. Right? Maybe it was God's common grace to, to avoid doing that. Maybe there was some practical reason. I don't know. But even in that act, I was still sinning. Right After we know now are regenerate by the Holy Spirit, we now have the freedom, not perfectly, not entirely, but we have the freedom to actually do something which is in accord with God's law. We're given the ability to, for righteous reasons, for holy desires, to avoid sinning. Not perfectly, not entirely, but in part, I can do something out of a righteous desire to serve Jesus and to obey his law. That's not something that the unregenerate person can say. And so we have to recognize that there's this complex interplay in our will, where now our will is mixed Right we have We have this will that is partially still corrupted by sin but partially sanctified by the Holy Spirit and and increasingly sanctified by the Holy Spirit. But this interplay between our desire and our actions is something that a lot of Christians they just don't understand fully.
0: Mm, that is really tasty right there. That was good. <laughs> uh, again, I feel like you're provoking me to say that statement because you
1: keep talking. About just, do so it, about just do it, Jesse, just do it. I'm
0: not going to do it. I will not fall victim. But this is like a great segue because, of course, like as always, time eludes us. But that's one of the things I wanted to make as a point is that I think – this idea of mistaking the fact that we somehow have a complete freedom to believe is actually a misunderstanding of common grace because like the doctrine of total depravity is not at odds with the fact that people, for example, like non-Christians are sometimes amicable or helpful or honest or civil or generous and loving. The Calvinist who affirms total depravity also affirms common grace, according to which God not only restrains the full manifestation of evil tendencies of the human heart, but also, on like a more positive note, enables the non-Christian to perform deeds that are quote-unquote relatively good. And, And we have to understand that in context of what Paul's assessment of the human condition, like in Romans 3, where he says, None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. And all my emphasis there was on like these action verbs. At the one part, we have Paul affirming that there is no one in the negative who is seeking after, trying to understand, who can contemplate or comprehend who God is. Everybody then in the opposite has done these things to turn away from, to move from, from God. And of course, in that process have become absolutely worthless. And so like, if we were to take those, what he says on the face, what those things that he says to our heart, to the essential nature of our being, that I think we have to understand that what Paul is saying there is there's something that is absolutely dead in mankind after the fall, which is everything you've just iterated that we need to appreciate that what we massively need is some kind of influence from the outside then that it's not as if like we can be presented with the right information. And then because we have the right data in front of us, that we can synthesize and synergize that information. And then somehow come to a right decision as if what we lacked was just the right material upon which to make a choice. What he's saying here is you can't make that choice, right? Like the choice does not actually even exist in your own power. Right. And, I love what you said because I find this is like such a cheapening of grace to say that like freedom is like this ability just to do whatever you want. What the scriptures say, as you've already kind of reiterated for us, is that the scripture says that the only free man, the only free woman is the one who is in Christ, not associated with Christ, but in Christ, because Being in Christ means that not only have you been forgiven, but you've been cleansed from all unrighteousness. You've been given power to pursue righteousness with the right intent. So it's not just about obedience as if like the outward manifestation of rule following is the thing that's going to give you some kind of credence or some kind of meritorious accomplishment with God. But it's this idea that now you've been united with the purposes of God. And that the person who can say, I turn from lustfulness, I turn from blaspheming, I turn from lying and cheating and stealing and decay and destruction and death is because it is Christ within me who empowers me to do those things in alignment with what is good and righteous, not just for the credit that comes with outward manifestation of putting on airs, but because now I've actually embraced, I've been changed from the inside out. Like, that is real freedom. Like, the only, the the Christian is the only person that can come and be confronted with lust or thievery or lying and say, I forsake those things. I push against them. Not because I want to show that I am somehow a better person, but because I am made alive in Christ. And now, the condition of my heart and the character of my heart is now aligned with the character of God himself. Yeah, Like, that is... Am I not saying? I'm. Not, I feel like I'm not even doing justice to how this is being said. Like that. That is such a profound, radical change of the the essential nature of being that if we conflate it with doing, that we are somehow making it cheaper.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, I find that in these times where words fail us, it's usually because we're not very good at words. I mean, well, that's true for me. The way that I mean that is like, <laughs> you know, th- this is something that I think people who do podcasts, write blogs, write books. Like we don't always just depend on smarter, more established people than we should. So I, I just want to read out of Calvin's institutes here because the, the first time that I got this and it clicked was in reading the institutes, which I think that probably describes like 90% of the Calvinist life is the first time that any theological point actually landed was in just reading the classic reform sources. And so in uh, Institutes, Book 2, Chapter 2, starting in Section 6, he says, all this being admitted, he's talking about the different kinds of freedoms that have been postulated by the schoolmen. He says, all this being admitted, it will be beyond dispute that free will, he's talking about unregenerate free will, does not enable any man to perform good works unless he is assisted by grace. Indeed, the special grace which the elect alone receive through regeneration. So his point is that, The non-regenerate person prior to the Holy Spirit's intervention, no matter what it seems like they're doing, no matter what kind of good civic works it seems like they might be accomplishing, apart from God actually regenerating them and changing them, it's not actually good works. And then he says, he goes through and then he says, starting in section 2nd, he says, or section 7, he says, in this way, he's talking about the freedom from compulsion, meaning that... Although there's a freedom which all men may enjoy, a freedom from compulsion in that an external force is conf- compelling them to do something. He says, in this way, man, regardless of their state is regenerate, is uh, said to have free will, not because he has a free choice of good and evil, but because he acts voluntarily and not by compulsion. Right. So that that's a critical difference that we're talking about. And this, this plays into... This is going to sound maybe a little blasphemous to some of our Calvinists, our our five-point tulipist listeners who've only been studying Calvinism for like a week and a half now. I became a Christian because I chose to become a Christian, right? I gave my life to Jesus because I chose to give my life to Jesus. Now, before you unsubscribe, you have to realize what that means. What that means is that the Holy Spirit changed my desire such that I no longer desired right. and therefore acted to oppose God, but instead I desire and therefore act to follow God. He made it so I desire that. And so now my free volitional act is not to oppose God, but is to actually embrace and follow Jesus. Right. And, and right. that's what our confessions say, right? That's exactly what our confessions say. That's the point of effectual calling. Effectual calling is not some, when we talk about irresistible grace, right? we have this picture in our mind that God is dragging us into the kingdom. Like the very words that that are used uh, have that sort of implication. Like we, maybe we tried to resist it and then God overcame our resistance. That's not a good way to think about it. That's not actually what happened. Yes. God didn't overcome our resistance. He took away our resistance. Yes, exactly. He didn't overcome our desire to oppress him or to oppose him he changed our desire, so we no longer have that desire. So what's what's irresistible about it is that God sovereignly acts to replace our will which opposes him with a will that desires to follow him. But once we've now been given that will, it's not that we are unable to resist his grace, it's that we have no desire to. And that's right. that's just like saying that I have no desire not to eat that cake. And so the The person who threatens me and says, if you don't eat this cake, I'm going to do X negative thing to you. That is an empty and meaningless threat because I already desired to eat the cake. It's kind of like if um, if someone was to say, if you don't um, if you don't go to bed at night and um, kiss your wife goodnight, then I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kind of shrug my shoulders and chuckle a little bit because there's no reason I wouldn't do that. There's no reason that I would do that. So I'm not, I'm not being compelled by this person to do it because I already would have done it regardless of whether they made the threat or not. And so when we're talking about the human will, and when we're talking about what it is to be totally depraved, what we're talking about is not some sort of, um, some sort of idea that like we're mostly opposed to God and like we just really don't want right. to follow him. What we're talking about is a, a, a will at the very core of it that is oriented against God and against the things of righteousness. And so since that will at its very core is opposed to God and opposed to the things of righteousness, then we invariably will follow our will to do those things. And so, so total depravity is actually so much deeper than most people think it is. Because I think a lot of people who, un, who read what total depravity is and they think of that as this sort of like corruption of human nature, they think of it really in Pelagian terms, right? They think about it in this sort of sense of like, well, I'm inclined, I'm inclined to do the wrong thing. And so I, I, I tend to do the wrong thing, but total depravity is so much deeper than that. It's really that I am at my very core of my being at the very essence of who I am in my very fundamental will. I'm opposed to God. And so everything right. that I do comes out of that desire to oppose God. So even when I do the things that externally look like the things that God may demand of me, they're still done out of a desire to oppose him and therefore are opposed to him. Right. And this, that
0: takes away then, by definition, a volitional choice for God. Exactly. Unless there is something that breaks that will, that takes away that opposition, or that defeats it. Right. For that purpose. We could we could use stronger language that there is an, a force coming against God and that God of course is the powerful force of the entire universe can break that. And so that's all I want to bring up is I, wa- I want to kind of emphasize that I think the reason why I want to pair like in this conversation of freedom to believe this idea of depravity and common grace is that I think that for maybe the Armenian, but generally in evangelicalism, what's happening is, is there is a conflation or confusion that for some reason common, because common grace exists, that therefore choice exists. Right. But this is actually a false conflation that the idea of common grace either as restraint, that although the restraint that God places upon sin and its effects is neither complete, else, of course, there would not be any sin at all, nor uniform, because also all men would be equally evil or good, it is of a nature that the expression, the effects of human depravity are not permitted to reach the maximum height on which they are capable. Yeah. And yet, at the same time, there is, of course, like a, a temporal restraint of God's judgment, this idea that besides placing restraint upon ungodly tendencies of the human heart, God freely suspends the immediate manifestation of His divine wrath, due which should be unto sin. Those things should not push us in a direction to believe that somehow we have free choice. Right. And I, I find this everywhere. And maybe this is like a decent place to close because again, we could talk, I think for at least like four more hours about this, but <laughs> I was, I was listening, which is like not necessarily no usual for me, but I was listening to Toby Mac this past week. And
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you just laugh at that.
0: This happens. Sometimes you find that Toby Mac. This just doesn't is,
1: surprise me. It, it doesn't. Yeah, you I are mean, such an eclectic music consumer that it does not I, surprise me. I guess me. so.
0: I'm a little bit embarrassed by this actually, but like, you know, Toby me can and drop some like sweet pop jams, but here's the thing. I was listening to his music and he has this, you know, relatively well-known song called, what is it called? I, I just need you. And I, I don't know where his like theological proclivities or convictions lie, but there was a particular lyric that just caught me where I was like, yes, that's truth. And we all behave like Calvinists. And here's proof of that. I think, So in the second verse of the song, he says, they comfort me when I'm beat down, broken, hold my heart when it's split right wide open, which, you know, that's just general language. I don't know what that means exactly. But then here's this lyric, turn these eyes to my soul protector and break the will of this born defector. Yeah, And see, it's that kind of language where I think we all have a sense that like there's something, there's a barrier. This is like the only place where there's like true addition by subtraction. That if God would merely take away... All of this anger and angst toward him that somehow we return to the garden that is like a place where we'd actually pursue him. But it requires the breaking of will. Like people will pray this way, like pray to defeat disease, pray God that you would defeat cancer and take it away, extract it from my body and pray also for my neighbor or my loved one or my brother or my sister who is against you. I pray that you would by your sovereign power, grab hold of them as it were, shake them by the shoulders, break their will of the defector and bring them into your loving embrace. Yeah. And so like, that's the reality I think that we're, I'm trying to bring together like this idea that the common grace, let's not, let's not confuse the fact that God allows a rain to fall on the good and the evil to somehow mean that we, if we're just presented with the right opportunity, the right data, the right information, would choose God.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the vital element, right? Is that, the difference between someone who chooses to follow Jesus and chooses not to follow Jesus is not fundamentally in what the presentation made to them is. And that, that's, yes. that's the insight of, uh, of the Calvinist Reformation, right? Is that the, the difference is not found in the sinner, right? The difference is not found in the sinner except in that the Holy Spirit has seen fit to change the sinner, and so so you can say on one sense that the difference is found in the sinner because of what the spirit has wrought in that person. But the ultimate deciding factor as to whether one person responds to the gospel or does not respond to the gospel is in the sovereign election of God and therefore what God does in the life of that person. And so it, it it's difficult and complicated theology, right? It's not simple for us to talk right. about this because right. just as much as it's true for me to say... Uh, the reason I'm a Christian is because I chose to follow Jesus, right? I have decided to follow Jesus. That's a true statement. Like there's nothing false about that statement. Right. At the same time, I have to say, I'm compelled by the scriptures to say, I had no ability to decide to follow Jesus apart from the Holy Spirit.
0: Exactly. Apart from his
1: work in me. And and that's where I think, you know, when we talk about the, the, the Calvinist model of, evangelism, right? We're we're like already like 90 minutes into this 60 minute podcast. But (laughs) when we talk about the Calvinist model of evangelism, this is where I see so many reformed people or Calvinist people go wrong is they, they endlessly nuance their call to repentance, right? Instead of just saying all who will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Whosoever believes in in the Lord will be saved, right? That's that's right. a straight biblical statement. We don't have to modify John 3.16 because the Arminians use it against us, right? Every verse is a Calvinist verse. We've made that joke before. Like there are no Arminian verses. There's there's none. They're all Calvinist verses because as Spurgeon said, like Calvinism is just a, sh- a nickname for biblical Christianity. Amen. However, when we preach in a way where we think that we have to modify John 3.16 to make it more palatable to Calvinist, theology, we're probably doing something wrong. So when I say whosoever will believe God will save, I don't have to qualify that because although there is all this other background theology that explains who it is that those whosoever will be, I don't have to help the scripture along because it is absolutely true because of what the Holy Spirit does, that the person who chooses to follow Christ genuinely chose to follow Christ. It's it's not it's not some compel com, uh, compelled choice that we make. It's not the lesser of two evils. It's not the impossible, difficult choice, right? It's none of that. It's a genuine, free decision to follow Jesus Christ, based on the fact that the Holy Spirit has given us this new heart and these new desires, which now freely chooses to follow Jesus, and that 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 is a gospel that will preach, right? This gospel that sometimes gets gets preached of like, well, if you're among the elect, then, you know, God has preordained you to make this decision, which you really didn't have the option to make. Like, I know that's a bit of a caricature, but I've heard people share the gospel in that way, where they they couch it in these conditional terms, where they don't feel comfortable saying, Christ died for sinners. Christ died for the ungodly to save whosoever will believe. Like, that's just the biblical language. We have to understand in our own minds what that means and how that, how that um, jives with the rest of the scriptural testimony. But when we're preaching, we have to be careful not to handicap the scriptures by trying to help it along too much.
0: Right on. And loved ones, that cake is salvation.
1: <laughs> and the cake is salvation. <laughs>
0: But that i honestly that's beautiful I, I think that's actually the best of all ways to explain yeah. that is what you 're trying to emphasize is this idea that the will conforms with what uh, with with god 's intent for us, and that really i think honestly it's it's i don 't want to have you nor I have children, but this idea of like when you 're parenting like good parenting is sometimes explained to your children that I think you're saying you think that you want that thing, but I know that you actually don't want that thing, that yeah. in the end, what you think is best for you is actually a thing that perhaps would be very harmful to you. And so this is just a hard thing for anybody to understand. So we're going to come back to this. Like, that's why I want to do two parts in this. We're going to come back to then like free will versus free agency in the context of everything we talked about, this idea of depravity and common grace. But my hope is that in us talking about this, others will be spurred on to have conversation with their loved ones, with their communities, with their churches, with those whom are processing as well, this journey of faith toward understanding what it means to actually be in Christ and how we get there. And so, I think that like this is of immense value and fruitfulness because I think the Bible is very, very clear about where we start in this journey, that Paul is abundantly explicit about what it means yeah. to be dead in trespass and trespass in sin. And so, we really need to take him at the face and understand what he means here.
1: Yeah.
0: And this shapes not only how we understand and respond to doxology to what God has done for us and to us, but also how then we have every other conversation with every other person who's not a believer— trying to explain what salvation means. And so like, I think this may seem like just a simple thing, but in the end, I think this is like the root of so much misunderstanding and then so much empowerment as well. When we come to understanding how the gospel transforms our lives.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good word. So this is maybe the first time that I can remember that I'm going to do this, but I'm going to assign our listeners a little bit of homework.
0: And oh, this is And there like it. should
1: be some homework that is a joy for people because we all love to read Calvin, but go, <laughs> go to the, the Institute, which is freely available. You can see and, um, and find it for free and read book two chapters one through four. And, and this is the section where Calvin lays out what it means for man to have a fallen captive will. And then right what on. God does to rectify that how chapter four is how, how God works in the heart of man. So when we come back in two weeks to talk about now, what it is to be able to f- be free to believe, right? We've talked about now, like what it means to not be free to believe what it is, what God has to do in our life in order to free us to believe when we come right. back to talk about, it, it's important to have that foundation. So uh, institutes book two, chapter two, uh, sorry, chapters one through four, just go read it. It'll take you probably like, half an hour, hour long, but it, it'll be worth your while.
0: That's so good because actually that is the right context for the next conversation. Because what we're talking about is basically asking the question, are you, you know, prior to the saving work of Jesus Christ supplied by the Holy spirit in, uh, you know, kind of orchestrated by God, the father, are you a prisoner of war? Like, yeah. is there a battle that's taking place? It's not just about sin versus like not sinning, but sin versus righteousness. Is there something you can do to escape from the war camp on your own? Yeah. So that is really great. I don't think we've ever actually done like homework where we said like, you know what? The best way to listen to this is having read this. So that is really good. Like we're yes. just breaking all kinds of new ground today.
1: I know it's a, it's a whole new world. I feel Can't like, stop. oh man, I feel like you we just, need some Aladdin music now at this point. I was
0: I really wanted to sing it. Can't stop. Won't stop. I can see it in your
1: eyes that you're resisting breaking into a little (laughs) bit of Disney classic songs.
0: I am, you know, listen, you're never going to get any complaints from me about bringing like more music into the podcast. It's true.
1: It's true. I would like you to convert a whole new world from the Aladdin soundtrack into some sort of screamo music. I would really, I would like to see that happen. There's probably someone Uh, out there that's already done it. I probably just need to like go to YouTube.
0: Don't, don't tell me like on any given week, you should know that when I like, I think about, Hey, what am I going to affirm? Like, honestly, I usually try to bypass three or four music recommended like styles or albums that are mostly screaming. And then I like, ah, I shouldn't do that. And then I go to like things like, Hey.com.
1: I, uh, just in the last 13 seconds found a whole new world screamo version on YouTube. So I will be listening to that after this episode. Will you? I will. I will. Okay.
0: That's impressive. Probably not well, for more
1: than a few seconds, but enough to figure out if it's legit or not.
0: Oh, well, that's, that's fair. Well, on that note, because we've got to end now, otherwise <laughs> it, we're going to go on forever. Yes. Honor
1: everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs>